Corporates fight to keep loopholes. Be that teacher for every child. Medicare boost and good news on spiders. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. I am your co-host, Ben Davison, and joining me in her Dolly Parton jumper and <laughs> pink sweatsuit, cuddling a puppy, drinking a passion fruit sodaly, is the great, the glorious, the opening playwright with her world exclusive for the Sydney Theatre Company of A Fool in Love, my wife, your friend, Van Badham. How are you, Van? I, I've, I have not had a great day in front of the computer, and I'd like to apologise to all my employers for the delay given the corrupted file situation, but I think I finally worked out what's going wrong and I think I fixed it. But my desperate apologies to the people who pay me to do work that uh, it has been a technical snafu of a day. Yes, this episode will be coming out slightly later than usual. Although, if, <laughs> But I have stopped screaming, so that's really good. And if you are a regular listener to The Week on Wednesday, you'll know that neither Van nor I are the most technically gifted people. No. As evidenced by the quality of this sound. But Van, it's been another huge week. It's always a huge week. Have you noticed? Every week we have is huge. It's always huge. It's always big. Lots going on. Gigantic. Ginormous. Ginormous. And look, you know, I want to be very, very domestically focused today. There's (laughs) lots, lots of international news and you can tune in to all sorts of podcasts and online news outlets for that. But, you know, there's a lot happening right here in Australia that impacts literally millions of people uh, and billions of dollars in wages uh, and entitlements. And I think it's actually worth us talking about uh, some of that here on our podcast. It's very important that these stories don't get lost because these are very important changes to Australians' material lives. And, you know, what has been a cost-of-living crisis and a lot of economic anxiety in this country, the idea that because there are absolutely horrendous things happening in other countries, the idea that we would miss out on learning about the campaigns that are relevant to our lives, some of which are being fought tooth and nail by negative anti-worker corporate interests, is a real worry. Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, the first of those is the closing the loopholes uh, bill. This is the piece of legislation. We've talked about this before, but there have been some Senate hearings uh, this week where BHP and Qantas, two of the worst abusers of labour hire loopholes, have really gone to town to try and get the bill knocked off or substantially changed. Um, Sarah McManus, leader of the ACTU and the Australian Trade Union Movement, um, did some tweets about this. Uh, Of course, if you're not a member of your union, um, this is one of the key reasons you should join because unions from across, in particular the mining and aviation sector at this particular hearing, um, really made the point that those sectors have been fundamentally undermined by the rampant use of labour hire. If you're not a member of a union, go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W. You can join online while you listen to the rest of this podcast. And you totally should. Of course you should. And it doesn't matter. Also a tax deduction. 
Well, there you go, right? And so, you know, some of the things uh, that, that have come out here is that labour hire mine workers uh, in Queensland were being paid twenty to forty thousand dollars less than directly employed workers doing the same jobs, having the same skills and same experience uh, of uh, bringing the same experiences to the workplace. I mean, that is a direct undermining of wages and conditions for working people. Now, the the crazy thing about this, in my view, is that the, the mining companies are banded together and they're spending some $26 million dollars trying to stop this, these laws from closing the loopholes. As we've talked about before, this is worth $9 billion to nearly a million people who are either trapped in casual work, who would prefer um, to have ongoing employment, uh, labour hire workers who are being underpaid uh, or are on sham contracts, usually with a platform provider. I feel the need to tell everybody Ben and I are currently playing past the puppy as the dog tries to make himself more comfortable. That's that strange, awkward noise in the background. Yes, Germanicus just has no respect for the listening comfort of our listeners. <laughs> Uh, but also, you know, the, the Senate hearing heard from uh, the Isaac Regional Council Mayor who was talking about how the use of these uh, loopholes had undermined the local economy as wages and job stability disappeared uh, and people's ability to participate in communities was essentially stripped away because they didn't know when they'd be working. They didn't have enough money to actively participate. And so the community as a whole started to suffer. I mean, we talk about industrial relations in this country as a sort of point of conflict between large corporations and workers represented by unions. The reality is it's actually a day-to-day lived experience right across our entire Commonwealth in every state and territory. Yeah, it absolutely is. And, I mean, the Closing the Loopholes Bill is a very rare example where it is what it says on the tin. There are loopholes in legislation that has allowed corporations, hugely successful corporations, corporations like Qantas that have, I think, what we can politely describe as an unearned advantage in the market and they exploit workers merely, I mean, because the logic of capitalism is just to make more money and the more ways that you can make money, the more ways you will. And traditionally the the absolute in the first place uh, demonstration of lazy capitalism is just to squeeze workers. And I was, I've was i spoken about this on the podcast before. This is literally the first chapter of Capital by Karl Marx, and he's like, they would squeeze in, squeeze in, squeeze in until there's nothing left. And then, I mean, Qantas is a great example because Qantas at the Senate Committee basically said if it hadn't exploited labour hire polls, it wouldn't exist. Uh, really? This, yeah. And That's this, interesting because it existed before it was the horrible private corporation we know today. And it has a $2.5 billion profit. I mean, there's existing and then there's living off the fat of your workers 
to the point where they've been cut to the bone. Oh, it just wouldn't be it just wouldn't be worth our while as a bunch of no-name executives who nobody likes and who have run this, you know, mighty brand into the ground. I mean, it would be it would just be unthinkable to to, you know, we're really doing it tough only making 2.5 billion dollars. Oh, oh, Ben. Oh, those poor poor folk. Well, I mean, there are some damning things in this, right? So this, yeah, is, that's pretty damning. But, but look, let's get into some of these details because Terry O'Toole, uh, who is the Flight Attendants Association of Australia Federal Secretary, uh, revealed to the committee that no cabin crew had been hired by Qantas in its main company. It's hiring them through these subsidiary companies that it owns, these labour hire companies that it owns, but no one has been hired as cabin crew by Qantas since 2008. And, in fact, in 2008, when it split its international crew into a new subsidiary, flight attendants of Qantas were paid $44.84 an hour. That's not a bad wage, but the new subsidiary employees only got $21.46. That's a 52% pay cut. To be a flight attendant. To be a flight attendant. Literally flying tin cans full of petrol lives in your hands. Yeah. crew And another, in another, the domestic subsidiary, so that's in the international crews. Domestic crews were paid 28% less. And Jetstar, which is, again, wholly owned by Qantas, have Thai and Indonesian workers flying on Australian aircraft being paid $2.16 if they're Thai and $2.93 an hour if they're Indonesian. I mean, this is supposed to be... I mean, that sounds like, uh, where am I going with this? Structural racism. That sounds like structural racism to me. Yeah, this is literally taking advantage of loopholes in our industrial relations system that allows an Australian company to use workers from another country using industrial standards that are not equal to those here in Australia to underpay those workers and pay them significantly less, even less than they were paying labour hire workers who were Australian. I mean, this is this is some outrageous findings. And Qantas is like... I mean, can I use the word sickening? Yeah, I'm actually going to use the word sickening. That is sickening. So there are flight attendants on Australian planes who are getting paid less than $3 an hour. Yeah, Less than three dollars an hour. That's what it says. So I really like those uh, Quest white chocolate and raspberry uh, protein bars. Uh, They're yeah. four dollars fifty. Yeah. So someone is being paid less than it costs for a Quest bar for an hour of maintaining my safety and comfort in a flying tin can full of petrol. Well, essentially, they would have to fly. They would have to do a a Melbourne Brisbane flight. To afford a Quest bar. That is just, I just, oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So that's pretty outrageous, right? Oh, my God. And Qantas is defending this, saying that. Oh, because Qantas will defend anything. They will literally defend anything. Absolutely appalling. Will absolutely defend taking billions of dollars from the Australian taxpayer with nothing in return during the pandemic only to outsource crews and get sued successfully, by the way. Congratulations to TWU and other unions and Morris Blackburn for that particular legal action against Qantas and their appalling treatment of the people who work for them. They're just like... 
They're lazy. That's what does my head in. It's just I am sick and tired of being lectured to by corporate corporate mm. interests in Australia about how oh, unemployed people are lazy and workers are lazy in Australia. Oh, we lack an entrepreneurial culture. You are the lad. You are the entrepreneurial vacuum. Don't improve your product. Don't justify the absolutely outrageous amounts of money that you charge for your products. Like whatever you do, don't innovate, don't create efficiencies, don't don't produce a market offering with a unique selling point that gives you an advantage over your competitors. What you should do is essentially lobby politicians to ensure that you ha- that you maintain, you know, not really a monopoly, but kind of you know, fairly large chunky cake, chunky slice of the cake. And then what you should do is absolutely rubbish the people who work for you and employ people from Thailand. In Indonesia, less than three dollars an hour to do the work. Do you know what you are? You're not even lazy. You're inert. Yeah, it's pretty inert. You know, and look. I want- oh my god! Oh, I'm so angry. And- I'm so angry. I just, I'm dying to hear these people. I'm, sorry, I'm just going. I'm going off on one because yeah, yeah. I'm angry. <clears throat> You constantly strike these people who who find out that you work in the arts, right? Mm. And it's all right for some people. Oh, off writing a poem, are you? And actually, I you know I work sixteen hour days most days. Oh yeah, well you know the arts. Oh, what a lifestyle! What a party! I spend all day screaming at a computer, you know, because like, I'm trying to to create good product, mm. you know, to entertain people. Bring a bit of joy into the lives of people who get exploited by companies like these. And for these absolute fat cats to turn around and be like, oh, yeah, oh, the arts, bruh. I'm like, and, and what do you do? You just set up subsidiary companies and exploit some ties in Indonesians, and that's your business model, is it? That's that's the amazing effort you go. You can just imagine them in the C-suite with the with the whiskeys on the table. Oh yeah, it's been a really hard day, Martha. Oh yeah, Jeremy. Oh, it's been really hard. I had to answer questions at a Senate. Committee. Oh, it's so hard. Oh, I had to speak to my lawyer for ten whole minutes, so I could say I don't recall. Oh, well, that's just corporate practice. It was my responsibility god oh my god what absolute boulders what absolute inert boulders of human beings they are well speaking of inert boulders of human beings five minutes you'd last in the theater five minutes you lazy lazy bricks speaking of inert boulders of human beings the mining and gas companies oh my god i'm gonna have an aneurysm i really am They gave evidence that the whole industry would shut down if they had to pay people the proper wages. The whole industry? The whole industry. Oh, yeah, we just wouldn't mind anything anymore. Is that a bad thing? Is that actually a bad thing? Because well, I can think of some pretty compelling arguments at the moment about how maybe they, other industries should maybe taking up a bit of space well, in that particular industrial malar. I think more to the point, that is the most nonsensical <laughs> concept I've ever heard in my life. Australia is Australia Australia is the world's largest exporter of gas. We export iron ore and coal on huge, huge scale. We do so very efficiently. Australian workers are incredibly efficient at these processes. And in actual fact, whenever you look at the cost of production versus the price per tonne of these things, all of the big companies, particularly the BHPs and the Santoses and the Woodsides of the world who have these subsidiaries, who utilise labour hire, 
BHP, remember, owns its own labor hire company. They all make huge profits, not just in wartime, not just in periods of peak global demand, but throughout their entire existence. They have been making huge, huge profits. If they can't run a mining, in, oh, look, if we pay people properly, the industry will cease to exist. Well, what an absolutely fantastic argument for nationalisation. Thanks, guys. So you actually, so the capitalists who are in charge of the industry cannot run it. It is beyond you. It is beyond you to run the industry paying people properly at the same time, paying people their market value, I'd like to point out, in a system that you advocated, you want it, oh, everyone, well, we, you know, set the worth of people. You want to keep profiteering through exploiting loopholes in legislation that go against what the market value, the agreed market value of these workers are. Um, and, uh, because if you didn't, if you didn't underpay them in your in the system of your own design, uh, then uh, the industry wouldn't exist. Well, thank you. Absolutely. I didn't pick the mining lobby for being instinctive, like, you know, Operation State Socialist, but I'm in. Fantastic. Hand over the keys to the car, boys. Let's go for a drive. And of course, it's not the... It's... <laughs> It's not just. Oh man! It's not just all conflict, though, man. It's not just all conflict. There's been. Are you sure? There has been. Because I'm feeling we'll the get, conflict. We'll, we'll get back to some more conflict in a moment, but there has been some some uh, positive movement, let's say, because Tony Burke and the Australian Hospitality Association, the people who I have often uh, criticised some of their members. People will remember my uh, position on Mary Vale and some of the other <laughs> less. I believe the word shonk was mentioned quite loudly. Yeah, some of the other shonky. Princeling, Princeling also got to go. Some of the. These are, you know, we can't swear on this podcast because it goes out through Apple Podcasts. And can I just say, Ben Davison on the issue of Merivale unedited is you have never heard anything like it. It would make an old sailor blush, can I say. Yeah. Yeah, can we just stop lauding billionaires who have made their money through wage theft and the mass exploitation? Isn't that all of them? Yeah, well, I mean, isn't yeah, that kind of how yeah, the system that's, works? That's sort of how the system works. Look, the good, the the, the the good news piece of this, right, that has come out during these Senate committee hearings, is that Tony Burke has agreed that there needs to be some greater greater clarity around some of the casual conversion components and the Australian hotels. Uh, well, Hospitality Association, whatever it's called, has uh, welcomed this uh, because Tony Burke has said, look, if people want to be casual, we don't want to stop them being casual. Like if there's good flexibility for people in that and they're getting a loading and that's going to work out, then that's good and well and we'll make sure that that gets protected. There's no issue here about people being genuinely casually employed. If the, that flexibility is required and is desired, then so be it. And of course, you know, we're not going to say uh, that you can sue people for back pay uh, if you're uh, found to have not been genuinely casual but should have been a permanent employee. We're going to let the Fair Work Commission deal with those issues because that's what the Fair Work Commission should do. Now, Tony Burke said this, but the AHA, as it's called, uh, welcomed it. And then, of course, it took about 24 hours before the other business lobby groups went, oh, well, no, that doesn't solve the problem at all. You know, we can, people can ask every six months and we've got to give a reason. And then they could go to Fair Work and Fair Work could make us, make them not casual, 
even though we've been using them for 42 hours a week, every week for the last 10 years on the same roster every six days. But they're still casual. And yes, okay, but they, and they get a loading. And yes, the loading does mean, even with the loading, yes, they get paid less than if they were permanent employees because of the way EB, EBAs and awards are structured in our industry. But that's not the point. There's still a loading. And this is the key point, right, is that actually in a lot of industries, casuals, despite the quote-unquote loading, are getting paid less because their, their pay rates are not going up in the same manner as they would if they were covered by a collective agreement. This just, is the just, loophole that is trying to be closed. I just want you all to imagine Ben doing that voice in like a, a black tail suit with like a white shirt and white tie and a silver cummerbund and a monocle and a black top hat because nothing changes. Like literally nothing changes. Well, it's outrageous. How dare you? How dare you, sir? It is funny voice day in the Batam Davison house, let me tell you. And of course, you know, we've all enjoyed the 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 endless bounty of home delivery via platforms. But folks, let me tell you something. It's been a scam from go to woe. Absolute scam from go to woe. Today, Van, there was an article that came out saying that DoorDash has warned users that not opting to tip drivers ahead of time will result in longer wait times as drivers will deprioritize their deliveries. I lo- blame the worker. Yeah. Blame and- the worker. What a fabulous blame the worker policy. We really can't be bothered paying them what they're worth. We want you to do that in an American-style system. And the American-style system, by the way, with tipping, means that you have people who work in hospitality in the United States of America in 2023 who themselves earn less than $3 an hour as a base wage and rely on tips from customers added to the bill, which you have to sort of intuit, you know, as if mm. through a process of divination if you're from another country, uh, that in order to make anything like a, a minimum or appropriate wage. And it is, it is outrageous. For DoorDash to try and encourage that culture here is just sick American garbage, can I say? Absolutely. Like, absolute, that is appalling. And I just want to say mm. this to people who use these services because sometimes at the kind of yuppie parties that Ben and I frequent, and we do, you know, you hear people going, yeah, look, I know it's wrong to use DoorDash. I know it's wrong to use this other platform. Oh, I know it's wrong. And it's like it's not actually just wrong and it's not just immoral. It is shameful and it actually participates in the corrosion of the industry that you work in. And we should be really clear here that using a platform or using platform technology doesn't have to be exploitative. There are employers in sectors that use platform technology to match employees with workers. Uh, you know, and this has come up throughout this process that there's a difference between, say, Higher Up and Mabel in the NDIS space, where Higher Up employs people. Mabel is well known contracting based platform. But Van, you know, the thing that most most frustrates me is an additional frustration about DoorDash. DoorDash, this has come out today, right? This thing about the tipping, it's come out in the project. DoorDash weeks ago told the Australian newspaper that if these changes uh, went through and the loopholes got closed, 
they would have to put up delivery charges for consumers. So basically what they're saying is no matter what, DoorDash is going to make consumers pay more. The only question is whether they pay a minimum standard and workers know they can get a minimum standard or they import an Americanized system whereby essentially workers are pitted against each other in a Hunger Games-style situation to work for tips. I mean, that is just, frankly, disgusting. DoorDash has every intention of putting out prices. This is what I've taken from these two articles, mere days, maybe weeks apart, that they are finding ways to blame the workers and blame the consumers to keep their own profits alive. And before people go, oh, well, sometimes these platforms, you know, they don't make a lot of money or, you know, they don't always do very well, da-da-da-da-da. Let's be really clear about how well some of these platform companies do because the guy who founded Menulog this week bought a $200 million house. He bought a $200 And this is not a guy based... So much better than a $199 million house. Not a guy based in New York. This is not some billionaire in London. This is a $200 million property in Sydney. This is... And look, you know, Menulog is, as far as I'm aware, one of the least bad platforms. Um, and maybe that speaks to if you treat workers better, you can actually do better. But we should not be thinking for a moment that the CEOs of these sham contracting platforms are somehow struggling to rub $2 together. Because let me tell you, the founder of Mabel himself has a $20 million home in Sydney. These are people who have done very, very well out of loopholes in our current laws who are now fighting tooth and nail to keep those loopholes open because by their own estimates, by their own admission, there is billions of dollars over the course of the next decade that are up for grabs. Just think of all the working people you don't have to see if you live in the kind of house that costs $20 million. Yeah. I mean, you can just make working people, the people who generate your wealth, completely invisible to you. Can't you, really? A house that size? A million rooms. It would take you a couple of hours just to find the lounge room if you pay $20 million for a house, let alone you're not going to run into anybody. It's not like you're going to the shops or anything. Oh, well, you probably use a platform to have You probably do with the person who delivers everything to the person who collects things for you who's hidden by behind a whole set of walls like some horrible dystopian sci-fi nightmare, you know, where a, like a rich Eloy just sucks the blood out of, oh, God, are just they're vampires. They're just absolute vampires. And I feel sorry for them. I literally pray for the few, for the fate of their immortal souls because you just reach a point where you have that much money, right? And you're that cloistered. We went through all of this with Tim Gurner earlier in the year. Remember Tim yeah, Gurner? And yeah, we yeah. need a bit of pain in the economy. And it's like, mate, what do you know about pain? Like seriously, to be so dismissive of other people's lives, what is going on with you? To to think that it is remotely acceptable to pay people less than three dollars an hour in any context, anywhere, ever, is just what does your home life look like? What do you what do you talk about? Like, do you just continually acquire overpriced 
garbage like to to what there was a there's this brilliant tweet that goes around every so often from a few years ago where someone said the Twitter had written, you know, no one should be a billionaire. Once you get to a billion dollars, everything you own should be taken by the government. Taxed. And, yeah, and turned into a park, used to, like, build a park or something. But you get a trophy that says, congratulations, you won capitalism. And I'm just like, well, yeah, because, you know. But there, it's that line from Chinatown, which I've mentioned in articles, but I I I come back to it again and again with a character played by Jack Nicholson, Giddies. He says, um, you know, what else? You've got all the land. It's only so much food you can eat. Like what else do you want? And the crazy capitalist goes, the future, as if that's obvious. And I guess that's what they're doing. It's what Elon Musk is doing and just these dystopian hellscapes that they build for the rest of us to burn and suffer in because pain is good for the economy. Well, the the good news about that is that, of course, Working people are standing up and saying enough's enough. Um, we have seen really uh, important collective action wins from the United Workers Union in the dairy industry. We, we reported on the uh, strikes that they were taking. They've had success now in all of those um, in those dairy facilities. Uh, huge congratulations to the NTU who had a big victory at Southern Cross University with the aspirational vampires of the university sector this week. Well done. Uh, and, of course, we see that right across the board there are working people standing up. And, of course, the union movement is marshalling its forces together to close the loopholes. These are loopholes. These are genuinely loopholes in our laws. And, look, capitalists, <laughs> made of loop. capitalists will always find ways to exploit uh, weaknesses in any system of governance or regulation. There, there are armies of lawyers and accountants, and that's their job. And that's why we have to continually update our laws to deal with that. This will not be the only time we have to close the loopholes in our industrial relations system. It's not the first time we've had to do it. Just like with our tax system, you know, if you've if there is profit to be made by finding a gap then there will be people who devote resources to making that profit. In this case, there is $9 billion in workers' wages that people like BHP, people like Qantas, people like DoorDash want to take and keep for themselves. That's what's at stake. Vampires. So when we say, oh, they're going to spend $26 million and people go, oh, well, they wouldn't really do that. Of course they will. Of course they will. It's $9 billion. I mean, that's like barely 10% of the value of your house, right? <laughs> if you're And if you're going, oh, is it worth being a union member? Think about this. If there's $9 billion up for grabs and business is spending $26 million to try and keep it out of your pocket or your children's pocket or your family member's pocket, don't you think it's worth investing in a union membership, which is, as Van, you've said, tax deductible, to try and strengthen the arm of workers to make sure that money goes into the pockets of working people? Because I certainly think it is. And I'll certainly be renewing my union membership, um, as I always do. Van, 
We need to move on because there are other big domestic stories as well this week. Uh, since you and I last spoke, we've had World Teachers Day, which, of course, our friends at the AU launched their new road trip to support the For Every Child campaign. And just today, we've seen uh, education Federal Education Minister Jason Clare and Prime Minister Anthony Albanese announce a $10 million advertising campaign called Be That Teacher, which has eight very accomplished and articulate-sounding teachers talking about why they became teachers, why it's important to be a teacher, uh, and, of course, trying to recruit more people into teaching. Now, I call this segment Be That Teacher for Every Child because the point that the Australian Education Union uh, has made is that a simple ad campaign is not going to fix the problems here. No. No. Goodwill does not fix this problem. Do you know what fixes this problem? Money and resources. Yeah. Because public school teachers have got to teach a more varied cast of kids, right? The public school system doesn't, by its very nature, have a filter that keeps out you know, any kid who's different or problematic or having problems at home or things going crazy or whatever. And that speaks to part of the reason why there are teacher shortages because the top three reasons uh, why people leave, and, and keep in mind here that one in five teachers leaves the profession in the first three years. So people go to uni, they do a three or four-year degree. Or they do a two-year master's. Or they do a two-year master's. And in the same amount of time that it took them to become a teacher, they leave the teaching profession. Oh, well, I mean- and and the, the reasons they leave are unsustainable workload, this mythology that teachers get all this holiday time. It's a nonsense. It's just absolute nonsense. There's after-hours meetings, they work on holidays, they do lesson plans, they have to do professional development, like it's constant. Um, remuneration and recognition. Teaching is one of the lowest paid of all the professions and, as you say, classroom issues because there's not the support staff and resources. Look, it's every single person we know who's a teacher, and Ben and I have heaps of friends who are teachers and heaps of friends whose parents are teachers, they have a vocational calling which is one of the most admirable values-driven systems of professionalism that exists in our society. The call to be a teacher is an extraordinary, it's a national treasure mm. uh, and given the work that they do and what they're expected to do and the complexity of the work they do and the responsibility that they have to the most vulnerable segment of the community, which is kids. And the idea, like teachers with that vocational calling, if you have that calling, you're there because you want to be there and you're there because you want to make a difference to the lives of children and to give them the gift of potential. That's what teaching is. But, and that's possible for every child and for teachers with that calling to provide those opportunities for every child if the resourcing is there for them to do the teaching. And to that point, 98% of public schools in this country are not funded to the minimum standard set by the government itself, 98%. So when they talk about we need to attract teachers, we need to retain more teachers, funding is a key component of this. It's a key component to making workloads sustainable. It's a key component to remunerating people properly. It's a key component 
to making sure that every classroom has the resources needed to help every child with their particular set of needs. And, I, and you know, it is a vocational calling. And for a long time, I think we in Australia... Coasted on that. Yeah, because now... Oh, well, these people will want to do this important work, so let's just not pay them that much or give them the things they need to do it because they'll want to do it anyway because they think it's important. That is also exploitation. Yeah, and now 70% of teachers have considered quitting. I mean, that's a huge number. Imagine in any industry, in any profession, if I said to you 70% of doctors were thinking of quitting or 70% of nurses were thinking of quitting or even 70% of accountants were thinking of quitting. I mean... I'm very pro-accountant. Yeah, it would be a national disgrace, a national emergency. And look, $10 million to advertise why being a teacher is good, no one denies that that's a good thing to do. No one's saying, well, you know, they shouldn't do that. But it's scratching the surface. And I want to just stress here that the campaign that the AU is running, foreverychild.au, is trying to send postcards to the Prime Minister, to Anthony Albanese, reminding him that he did promise to get public schools to that minimum standard that 98% are not at, and you can check this out at www.foreverychild.au slash postcard. You can do a digital postcard that will be delivered to the Prime Minister later in the year. Um, these were launched on World Teachers Day. There's already 2,000 volunteers uh, who are signed up for a weekend of action between the 11th and the 13th of November. They're going around their neighbourhoods talking about uh, this issue around funding public schools. Because frankly, a $10 million advertising campaign, like I know it sounds like a lot of money and $10 million is not a small amount of money or whatever, but like it's- I mean, it's barely a house. Well, it's less than, it's less than, it's less than what political parties and major third party campaigners spend during election campaigns, Mm. right? Like that's the reality. Yeah. I mean, I just, I want people to think if you went to public school like I did, I want you to think- of the teachers that shaped your life, like the ones who gave you the advice that you needed when you needed it or the encouragement you needed when you needed it, who told you to hang in there or who cut your break when you needed one. And I want you to imagine that those teachers who had such an impact on your life were thinking about quitting and miserable and having to wrangle more admin, you know, more responsibilities than the staff at the school could manage. I want you to imagine what it'd be like if they if if they didn't have the resources to teach you the way that they did and the pressure that put on them individually and psychologically and in every other way. And how would their discussion with you have been different? I mean it'd be hugely different. Yeah. And every time we put every time we exploit a teacher, we're denying them the opportunity of of living their vocational calling, which is to create opportunity for children. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Look, you know, be that teacher for every child is I think something the government needs to commit to. For every child. Yeah, because it's not just saying to Australians individually, you know, go and be that teacher, but the government needs to commit to ensuring that there are enough teachers, enough support staff, enough resources for every child 
and, and so that every teacher can be that teacher, can be that teacher yeah. that helps those children. And every child has the capacity to lead a happy and fulfilled life. We have very different aspirations as individuals within a society, but there is a place for all of us to prosper and thrive. Absolutely there is. No one should be left behind. No one should not have the help that they need or the encouragement they need or the support that they need or the kindness that they need because let's be very clear, you know, there are kids who don't get kindness at home or attention at Mm -hmm. home, you know, and that's tragic. But who picks those kids up? Teachers do. Absolutely. And in franchising teachers to be able to do that unbelievable work of building society, we have to resource them because we can't let any children, any children, lose those moments of opportunity and potential. Couldn't agree more, Van. Speaking of moments of opportunity and potential, we all know that Well, education is one of the core pillars of a healthy, successful, prosperous society. One of the five pillars of the welfare state, in fact. So too is universal access to healthcare. Which is another pillar of the five pillars of the welfare state, Benjamin. And so some good news today. I love good news. And this is today. There's lots of good stuff happened today, actually. It's it's nice to have things to talk about that are immediate, have happened immediately today, Uh, is that uh, one in, th- sorry, three in every five GP patients will find it easier to see a bulk billing doctor thanks to changes to GP billing, uh, bulk billing uh, incentives. Now, this will benefit 11.6 million Australians as it means, sorry, the dog is being very squirming. He really is. Yeah, I'm starting to think you He's might a greasy to- little Frankfurt. <laughs> I think he might need to say, doctor. Um, so this is this is huge, right? 11.6 million Australians will benefit. And to give you some sense of this, right, so the kind of numbers that get thrown around here go, oh, GPs will get a bonus of $20 and if they're in the cities and almost $40 if they're in regional areas. But let's put those numbers into context because at the moment, if you're a GP who bulk bills in a metropolitan area, that incentive is only $6.85. So it's gone from $6.85 to $20.65. That's three times. They've, the Anthony Albanese and Mark Butler, the Labor government, have tripled the incentive to bulk bill in metropolitan areas, and they have done the same thing in the regions, where it was only $13.15 and will now be $39.65. You know, I saw some footage where someone from the coalition was trying to bag out uh, Labor's policy on this, and all I could think was, you had a decade in power, you didn't do anything about this, you you kept metropolitan bulk billing incentives at less than seven dollars a person. Labor has raised them to almost twenty one dollars a person. You know, this is a real investment in Medicare. It's a real I'm not saying it's going to fix all the problems. It's not going to close every Medicare co-payment gap. There are obviously still issues around shortages of GPs, again, after a decade of underinvestment in training and education. But this is a huge step forward for 11.6 million people who are under the age of 16 or have a concession card or are pensioners to be able to 
to more easily access a bulk billing doctor because now the incentives are three times what they were before. This is a real targeted investment in the cost of living. Oh, absolutely. And for friends of ours, we have a friend in particular who's been really unwell and has not been going to a doctor because they couldn't access a bulk billing one and couldn't afford it. Getting sicker and sicker. And the system is not supposed to work that way. You know, if you if you should not have to forego healthcare because you do not have access to a bulk billing doctor. I mean, that is just that's an outrage. So this is really important. And I want to be really clear with people about the broader political picture that's emerging and what the particular challenges are going to be around the next election, given the fact that Labor is moving in the direction of building up these material supports. Like Labor is a material party, Mm. right? The reason why you and I are Labor people and not Greens or Teals or anything else is we've seen in our own lives transformation through material opportunity. You and I came from absolutely nothing and were able to build the careers we want, pursue our own vocational calling, you know, build our family in the way that we wanted to because we received amazing, like, health opportunities and education opportunities that were built for for people like us by Labor governments. And me in particular with my entirely shiny, um, fantastic public school education and my experience mm. of going to a regional university that existed to accommodate people who were wacky like me, which is fantastic. You know, these are building the buildings, putting the staff in them, paying the staff properly is actually what enables societies and communities to thrive. The happiest countries on earth are all the ones with these consistency material opportunity for people to get healthcare and get education and to have effective public transport and to have nice environments to live in. And and fair and decent wages. Fair and decent wages, roofs over their heads and services that are there, cradle to grave welfare again and again and again. We know these societies are the happiest. Oh, what a coincidence. That's amazing. You know, and... The the thing is that what we're seeing happen politically all around the Western world is that in democracies where people are elected through majorities, for the other side that's anti-material, for the anti-Labor parties, for the what are now the traditional conservative parties, although even conservative principles have gone out the window with a lot of them, and that lunatic who's the populist right candidate for president in Argentina is a pretty compelling case in point. And if you haven't seen the John Oliver episode about the lunatic, the radical libertarian lunatic whose icon is the chainsaw and who looks like a roadie in a suit, like I just can't even, it's just too terrifying. You should watch it. Ben and I always watch last week tonight. It is one of the highlights of our television viewing week. Um, You really should. But what the right are doing, because they can't campaign on material outcomes, because they don't really believe in them. I mean, they don't believe in the welfare state. You know, the most progressive person in the Australian Liberal Party believes in the barest amount of welfare, you know, mm. that public schools probably shouldn't fall down, but, you know, that in rewarding private schools. Like, we've seen this for years and years and years. And... So they can't actually win a political argument on a material opportunity for people Mm. like more bulk billing doctors, like better public schools, like, you know, 
trans- transformational service opportunities and good jobs and wages and the Close, rest of it. Closing loopholes to make loopholes. sure. You know, I mean, the Liberal Party are actively campaigning, campaigning to maintain the loopholes. Yeah. They are running the Maintain the Loopholes campaign, not for the benefit of small business, but for the benefit of the lazy capitalists who I was yelling at half an hour ago. So what they do to win, and we've seen this in the United States and we've seen this in Britain for 10 years, where the Tories have absolutely trashed that country, they have trashed it, Mm. that they are increasingly turning towards emotive cultural issues Mm. in order to build up a voting base. That Brexit, which has been an economic disaster for Britain that has turned Britain into just a poor and dysfunctional country, Mm. one flick of the pen, well done, Um, Brexit was based around, you know, these cultural ideas of nationhood and what it meant to be British and taking back control and sovereignty and, you know, jolly hockey sticks and we won the Second World War through pure determination and we had an empire and it's like, yeah, because you stole things from other people who don't let you steal them anymore and if you pull out of the EU, there are no countries left for you to steal things from, you know, like... And in America, the whole phenomenon of Trump and these just obsessive crusades, like there was a member of Congress the other day who was talking about absolutely if a 10-year-old gets pregnant in America, they should be, because they've been raped, they should be forced to carry their baby to term even if it kills them, you know, because this sanctity of life argument, what about the sanctity of the 10-year-old's life? No, must be absolutely sacrificed on the altar of, you know, anti-abortion purity. Like these these abstract notions of what constitutes identity or culture or Mm. your tribalism basically start dominating debate. And already, obviously, this is something that they were very attuned to in the voice campaign Mm. and the no campaign and the pushing out of disinformation, which was all about, oh, yeah, but there's no racism in Australia. Voting voting for the voice is racist. Oh, yeah, we're just going to normalise the city of relations because that's what I'm most Australian. You know, the flag starts getting posted all over these things, these very strong cultural messages of us and them in group, out groups, and we're going to see more of it. And that was the whole Trump thing in the United States. Trump was an economic disaster for the overwhelming majority of Americans racked up a trillion dollar deficit by giving tax cuts to people who didn't need them. Biden, because it turns out he's some kind of freakish Keynesian economic genius, is literally turning the economic ship around in the United States, managing to keep inflation under control while creating record numbers of jobs, but he's pumping money in a traditional social democratic way into government-owned enterprises and government contracts and, you know, uh, local provision and, and all of these things in the United States. And it means that the right are going to campaign on emotive identity issues. You know, this is the big joke about right-wing people decrying identity politics when actually the entire basis of the modern right in the West is based in a sense of identity and communicating, you know, a very emotional, provocative, anger and fear-inducing sense of cultural threat, Mm. you know, and it, it like all of these things that Labor are doing are really great. I would love them to be bigger and faster. I understand that there are constraints on what a government can do. By enabling more people to get bulk build healthcare, you know, beginning down the road of funding schools, public schools, the minimum standard and encouraging people into public service professions like teaching, pursuing the closing loopholes built, these are good and they are real and they are real things that make a difference to people's lives. And the idea that they're going to get swept up by an unregulated internet campaign of identitarian garbage 
genuinely terrifies me because of what we lose if people believe it. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And, and you know, when we started the week on Wednesday, you know, you and I talked about what we would talk about, right? Like we talked about how this podcast would talk about the news, but it would focus on news that was relevant to working people and in particular working people in this country. You know, it's not to say that we don't have international solidarity. It's not to say that there aren't international stories that sometimes make it onto the show, but that there are there needs to be a focus on issues that are important to working class people that Often the billionaire and corporate-owned media and even government-owned media channels don't really focus on because of the way, you know, and I say this as someone who studied journalism at university, the way that journalists are trained, the way that media uh, rooms and newsrooms work, the way that stories are chosen. Some of these, some of these issues, you know, they might get a little bit of a run, but they're not going to get the kind of discussion that you and I have about how they're going to impact millions of people. Like the news that I've seen around the bulk billing stuff has been around, you know, oh, there's going to be a change to the way bulk billing works. That number, that 11.6 million people number, is really hidden away, right? Like it's as though that doesn't matter. I mean, that's a huge amount of the Australian population, that's more than half the Australian population is going to benefit from this. Uh, and yet somehow or another, this is not um, leading news. You know, $9 billion in wages being denied. Like there's an active campaign by some of the biggest corporations in this country to deny workers $9 billion in wages. And somehow or another, that's not a leading news story, you know. 98% of our public schools are underfunded. Now, increasingly, that is a leading news story. And thanks to World Teachers Day and the work of the AEU, that has come into focus in the last little while. But we are going to talk about those issues on this show because that's why we set this show up, right? Like, we want to make sure that working people are seen and heard and the issues that impact working people are actually discussed. And I hope what we're doing is giving people a language that they're confident in understanding their own beliefs. It was interesting. Uh, I did an event, a wonderful event for Ballarat Library uh, last weekend talking about disinformation and counter-disinformation strategies and the kind of work that I do. It was awesome. It was a really, really great event. And, by the way, if you're from a library or community centre, I'm very easy to find on the internet. You want me to come out and teach workshops on how to counter disinformation amongst your friends and family and even yourself. I'm always, always looking for opportunities to preach that gospel. But somebody came up to me afterwards and said, oh, we listened to your podcast. And I was like, oh, that's amazing. Because Ben and I do this at home and it's always really, we meet other podcasters and they've got these amazing studios and, you know, they employ producers and it takes them a week to put the episode together and they script things. And Ben and I are like, oh, yeah, we're just having a bit of a chat at home with the dog and uh, I do apologise for our production values but hopefully you find them quaint and uh, and I, so I'm always sort of surprised when I meet people who listen to it because, you know, lots of you do. Um, and she's, and I said, oh, you know, some really niche democratic socialist laborist neo-Keynesian macronomic chat. And she said, yeah, you know, I didn't realise it was one of those things until I listened to your podcast. Like I, I didn't realise that's what I was. And 
it's you know so much of the media and political class um, discourse relies on keeping people out of the conversation by using exclusive language, by not explaining the history and context of uh, of mm. ideas. And look, that's fair enough. If you're working in a newsroom where it's yeah. breaking news after breaking news after breaking news, sitting down and going, "Well, boys and girls and others, this is how capitalism works." And let me introduce you to is, I mean, that's not that's not really how the news cycle works. No, it's a car crash from Frankston that's on fire that's got to be covered. Yeah, if it bleeds, it leads. So, I mean, we are trying to give people that sense of confidence that they can go. Actually, these are the principles that I stand for. This is the ideological tradition I come from. These are the things that are really important. Yeah. Because decisions around increasing bulk billing access and improving public schools, they don't come from a vacuum. They come from a tradition of left-wing beliefs that have really specific names like social democracy, democratic socialism and socialism. Like they're important words that we shouldn't be afraid of using because they do represent, mm. you know, our political aspirations and they they codify the values that go into frameworking policy that actually directs resources and money and they're important and it's important that people understand that. And improves the lives of literally millions and millions of people in this country. Van, look, we do have to wrap up soon. Teaching all children to read so everyone can abuse me on the internet. <laughs> but there is some good... That's a universalisation of opportunity, people. Yeah, that's right. Look, there is some good Did news. Did I mention I had a very long day? Yeah, so... There is some good news from our friends Labor for Farah. Is this about a dancing spider? This is about a dancing spider. This brought joy to my heart. Now, look, some people may or may not think this is good news. We, we, ben, who's terrified of spiders. But, you know, our good friends Labor for Farah. And full disclosure, I'm scared of eels, so it's okay. <laughs> we all have our thing. Um, have sent us a story about uh, a tiny, colourful dancing spider that was thought to be extinct for the last two decades, uh, has been uh, found and has been verified uh, uh, as an uh, unidentified species of peacock spider. Uh, it, it, they've taken photos of it. Uh, it it's, I didn't realise it. There were 97 different species of peacock spider in Australia. <laughs> Our country is just, it's its amazing. That's it's amazing cool. and we should preserve it. Two dozen of those species are yet to be named. So there you go. Um, this is a this is a very colourful dancing spider found, uh, found up in the, uh, well, far west, it's only been found in the far west of New South Wales and twice in inland Western Australia uh, and now it has been found uh, near Lake Walla Walla uh, and the Sturt National Park. So there you go. It's a uh, and in I'm going to say this wrong, and I apologise to our friends at Labor for Yarra. Farah. Farah. Labor for Farah. Spiders want your dreams, Ben. Millowa. 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 There you go. I might be wrong. 
Dancing spiders in Meloa. That's the good news. Yeah, they're back. They're back. They're back. Look after your spider. And a huge shout out to Gene, the huntsman who lives in our bathroom, who's been keeping the flies down. Thank Indeed. you, buddy. And thank you to everybody on the internet who kept who helped me identify Gene, who is a, who is small for a huntsman. Mm. Um, and I didn't know if he would kill me or not, but he won't. He will in fact kill the spiders and mosquitoes. So I'm very pro Gene. Flies. Thanks, and buddy. What did I say? Spiders. No, he will kill flies and mosquitoes. He's not He's not a cannibal, Ben. No. Um, and keep us very safe and protected. Love your local huntsman. That's what I said. Speaking of people keeping us safe and protected. Are you going to talk about our cadre and extend the reach supporters who promote the show on their channels and support us with a lovely contribution, which enables us to advertise to ever greater and bigger audiences? Absolutely. And it doesn't matter if you make a one-off contribution, a buck a week contribution, or indeed become extend the reach and give us $10 a month or cadre who give us $20 a month all of that money goes into building that audience and of course if you don't have the capacity we understand there's a cost of living crisis just liking sharing leaving a review leaving a comment sharing this podcast with friends and family will always be free to download always free to listen is always very much appreciated and welcomed as well but because our extend the reach do chip in and our cadre do chip in Ben does read out their names. I mean, there is uh, there are people who, believe it or not, do not know that somewhere in Ballarat, a woman in a pink tracksuit is yelling about capitalism <laughs> on a weekly basis. And, you know, maybe um, we're just trying to help them find it. We just want them to have that opportunity. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay. I'm having a day. All right. Cadre, you ready? Yep. Shamila Lakal, Ms. Deanne Weir, Joe Lockery, Steph Karina Bali, at Jancy Campbell, Leona Gibbon, Shane Horsfall, Jessica Davy, 26, Andy Stavitt, Ken Lee, Jason Paris, Mega Itchy, Saurus, Matt Trussies, and Common, Ross Kenner, 888, Bronwyn Cockington, Terry Butler, Jack Powell, Gal Ferguson, Rebecca Fanning, Falongman, Colm Kelly, Ali Vance, Miriam, Love Your Work, Yeet, Yeti, Claire, Jason Ellis, Camille, Akiva Burris, Gabe Kramer, Stephen Aitken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona McNeil, Ajit Carney, Broman, Punch Trunk Veteran, at Jenny Forster 7, Cassandra Tui, Ian Hampson, No Twitter for Me, Hannah Honda, Matt Bush, No Relation, Glenn Robbie, Brush Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Linda Cardride, at Leanne Jingles. I don't have Twitter, my name is Susan Myers. Kerry Nash 20, Billy 3 McKay, Nerissa Simon, at Cutter Lauren Ash and Banjo, we love you, Banjo, we love you also, Lauren and Ash, but Banjo is very cute. At Narunga Man, John Sharp and Peter Bath, Louise Watson, Slash red, white, and blue, blue, and extend the reach supporters are Helen Delahaye, Kim Murray, Bardwell, Janet McCalman, Jeremy Mal, Rosie Elliott, Lara at Robert Notfield One, Michael Wales, Sanj Kelly, Dorena, Donald Vaughan, Damien Marley, Michelle Norton, Rodney Slap, Cameron Tridragon, Daniel Crazy Kezza, John DeHan, Ange Fennel, Annie Uren, Melanie Denny, Jody A. Not on Twitter, Penelope Judge, Spirit of Anger and Hope, S. Wood at Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Rich Reverse, Someone, Vendor W, Nandita Hannam, Maury Louise Hawker, Megan Wickett, Graham Oxley, Tracy Luke. Sandy Honan, at Gal Bestbreed, Martin, trainer, Amy Fawcett, not on Twitter, Sarah, Elian, and Andrew, Ivor Spillett, Peter O.C., Sam Hadid, Kip Patterson, Buncombe Basher, Katie Wood, at The Real Neville Longbody, Sandy Bonegard, at Not Sandy B, Renee McGee, Stuart Mullen, Blagoya, Matthew Case, Marky Mark, Adrian Valente, Ms. Ritzer, Carrydale 68, Frank House. Erica Pizzuti, Joe Lapeno, Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, and Pauline Bate. And can I just say a big shout out to the people who randomly capitalise their names? Because every week I'm like, should I yell it out? And sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. But I just I love the chaos. I live for it. We live for the chaos. And, of course, you can join me on Sunday for the weekend wrap. It'll be a long weekend this weekend, but I reckon I can still get a weekend wrap in on Sunday. I reckon we can manage that. Um of course, until then, 
Don't forget to check out Van's articles in The Guardian. There should be one coming out in the next seven days or so. And don't forget to get your tickets to A Fall in Love in Sydney Theatre Company. And? And, of course, to um, The What's Questions. It? Oh, good boy. In Adelaide, being put on by the State Theatre Company of South Australia. In July. In July. So you can have a comedy or a musical, or you could be a Van Batten completist and see both. See both. Why not? Save up. Save your pennies. Make them a Christmas present. Make it a Christmas present to yourself. Until then, love you, Vanny. I love you too. I even love you, Jim, even though you're being awful. Bye. Bye. Bye.